Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams, where we have Swin for one more episode. Or so we think he may refuse to leave. Swin, welcome back. Look, I've gotten used to the perks of a guest host. I'm not just your run-of-the-mill every week host anymore. I've gotten used to the perk of you telling the audience, who I am, what my senior title at Rolling Stone magazine is, and how beautiful and handsome I am. And why am I not getting that right now? All of the usual things. That was the first episode you were back. So, Swin, it's been a wild ride, and you know I'm sure we'll have you back in, in the future on Trump World. First of all, it's not just the big guys in Trump World. Swin, sometimes it's the small guys who get crushed. Are you familiar with the saga of Ray Epps? He's a prime example of what about the little guy? What about the little people just riding around the miasma of MAGAism? He is perhaps the quintessential example of that today. What about the little guy who encouraged people to do an insurrection? So we're jumping off here from a, a Times story, a New York Times story from last week by a guy named Alan Foyer. Ray Epps is an interesting character. So quick background on him is that he's kind of like a middle-aged Trump guy. Like you kind of couldn't pick him out of a lineup at a Trump rally. It looks like a billion other guys there. However, the night of January 5th, so he came from Arizona to D.C. like so many others did to stir things up on the day of January 6th. The night before, though, he had the misfortune to be caught on video encouraging people to enter the Capitol and break the law in an argument with sometimes Fever Dreams character, Baked Alaska. And so this was all live streamed. And so it was like, Baked Alaska destroys Boomer and stuff. And so Ray Epps is saying, we got to go into the Capitol. And then Baked Alaska starts saying, this guy's a fed. This guy's a provocateur. The go-to insult or oftentimes baseless allegation that you want to level against another shithead standing immediately to your right. If you're in a crowd of like incredibly rabid, Trumpified partisans. This guy's a fed. You must be a fed because you looked at me funny. Someone who is sort of who agrees with you on 99.9% of things, but you may disagree with on optics, for example. Now, look, did Baked Alaska enter the Capitol? Yes. Despite saying, oh, no, this guy's trying to trick us into entering the Capitol. So then the next day, Ray Epps is videotaped marching on the Capitol, as so many others did, in sort of seeming encouraging of it. However, it's not really a lot of evidence that he went in the Capitol or what 
whatever. So he ends up not getting charged. He goes back home to Arizona. Then Darren Beatty, former Trump speechwriter who resigned from the administration way back when for attending a racist conference, he has this site called Revolver that kind of cooks up. It's sort of like, this is like the lab. This is like where they cook up a lot of the conspiracy theories about January 6th. It really is a conservative media case study in failing upwards. Like you described the Cliff's Notes version of what this guy's career trajectory was. And then he just creates this website with a name that sounds fake, but it isn't somehow. Revolver really sounds like Homeland would be like, all right, we need a like Alex Jones stand in. He writes for a website called Revolver. Right, exactly. And he just comes up with this bullshit, oftentimes based on nothing, sometimes based on a sliver of a court document that he willfully or not willfully misinterprets. And it just gets shot up rapidly into the conservative and the MAGA media and politicking bloodstream. This has happened numerous times. Well, several times, I should say. And this is because Darren Beatty has like the Tucker Carlson green room on speed dial. I mean, basically, I mean, this is kind of a type of character we run into sometimes, but it's sort of like we need, there is a huge demand on the right for a conspiracy theory explaining X or explaining why this thing that looks bad about Trump is not actually bad. And so we're going to say, so we just kind of need a guy who can write like 3,000, 4,000 words in a way that don't really make any sense, but people can look at it. I mean, it's kind of the 2,000 mules phenomenon where it's like, all right, this guy did a big thing. And so we're kind of going to assume, all right, well, that works for me. I buy that. And so they get him on Fox News. And so in this case, they get him on to talk about Ray Epps. So Ray Epps had, because of this argument with Baked Alaska, and because he wasn't charge, people said, well, I think this guy's a Fed. He was a kind of federal agent sent in to rile up the MAGA masses. Now, we're talking about north of at least 10,000 people there in D.C. that day. Uh, the idea that one man is kind of doing a Johnny Appleseed thing, you know, kind of going around saying, hey, you, attack the Capitol. Hey, you, you know, to everybody. It doesn't really make a ton of sense. But at the same time, I gotta point out that for people who maybe from the jump suspected him for being a Fed or whatever, like baked Alaska. What does it say about you that you said that and you thought that and yet you still let the f alleged Fed trick you? Right. The worst thing we could do, the thing the nefarious federal government wants us to do is attack the Capitol today. You Whoops. had the option to <laughs> not do it at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So because of this Tucker Carlson broadcast and various other things online, Ray Epps becomes tagged as a Fed. And so people come out to his ranch and say, like, hey, you're a Fed or whatever. He gets a death threat. And so this guy is profiled in the Times. The dateline from the Times is something along the lines of in an undisclosed location in the Rockies. And so basically, Ray Epps and his wife have had to go on the run because of the Trump grassroots and the right wing media that he once loved turned on him as a convenient patsy for the guy that they could blame for January 6th. And so now he, you know, after this death threat and what have you, he sort of had to up stakes, abandon his business and get out of Dodge. Give me some color on exactly what being on the run means. Well, it means you're in your RV. You just got to keep moving. He has these kind of moments where he thinks that he goes to a restaurant or what have you and thinks that someone is kind of eyeing him. I mean, this guy is, I will say, probably one of the no most notorious figures if you're like pretty steeped in right-wing media. I mean, this guy is like a great villain. And so now because of the kind of the swirling forces of right-wing media conspiracy theories and because of a, a confluence of events just sort of landed on him and now his life is ruined. And so I think some people might say, I think with some justification that this is poetic justice, um, that this is a guy who, were it to land on someone else, I think it's probably pretty possible that he would be 
accusing that person of being a Fed. I mean, obviously, this guy was encouraging people to enter Congress and overthrow the government. I think the Epps story, not the most sympathetic character. But I do think that this story hits on a theme we keep returning to, which is this way that the right-wing media apparatus can decide really randomly to destroy someone's life. And obviously, we think back going back to Pizzagate, the Seth Rich saga, many other things. In this guy, this time, I think it's just interesting because it landed on a uh, Trump supporter. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't he someone who so many people who must have been his media and political heroes like Donald Trump, envoys of Fox News, hosts on major organs of conservative media. It's not like it's been proliferating aggressively on Reddit that this guy's fed, although I'm sure there isn't a lack of stuff like that. But like major players in conservative media and the Republican Party have called this guy out by name. Am I remembering that incorrectly? That's absolutely correct. Yeah, I believe members of Congress. I mean, look, we're talking about Tucker Carlson, who's probably top 10 figure in the conservative movement. And so I believe in the Times story, there was talk about maybe a libel case in the same way that Smartmatic and Dominion, the voting machine companies have sued uh, for libel, that he could do the same. So I think that's interesting. I think also uh, sometimes I think it's just remarkable watching this uh, machinery just sort of descend on someone uh, and blow up their life. Somewhere in there, could we play the audio of him in Baked Alaska? So I'm going to put it out there. I'm probably going to go to jail for it, okay? Tomorrow, we need to go into the Capitol. Into the Capitol. What? No! No! Fed! 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 Peacefully! Fed! 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 Going back to the lessons of antiquity, there was a point where Julius Caesar needed to remain consul or he would be prosecuted by his political enemies. And I think many would say that that, the sequence of events that followed from there ended the Roman Republic. Now, you have a story that it's a bit similar that Donald Trump fears that he needs to once again become president to avoid prosecution, not unlike Julius Caesar of old. When I was invited back to guest host this podcast, I was assured that there would be no high school history lesson. I've gotten a lot more learned. Okay. Since a few months back. Skating past that for just a moment here. Look, there are obviously a number of reasons that Donald J. Trump wants to be president of the United States again. But one factor weighing heavily on his mind nowadays has to do with definitely not going to prison or anything like that. Will, I was raised to believe that even if you commit some of the most heinous crimes or atrocities of recent history, if you manage to get the job of president of the United States, you're good. It's the ultimate get-out-of-jail-free card. That's the perk of the imperial presidency. I know that's how the Department of Justice generally views it. Is that how you've interpreted it over the past few years? I mean, I think certainly that's in practice how it works out. I think back to watching Frost Nixon when Frank Langella, as Richard Nixon says, you know, if the president does it, it's legal. And I think president-wise, that does seem to be how it is. Right. And, well, I mean, not right as in morally correct, but unfortunately, there's elements of reality going on there. So, Swin, you have this new article on Trump's motivations to run for president again in 2024. And in particular, you might think sometimes people, when they want to run for president, they want to improve the country. Maybe they just want some regular kind of graft. But in this case, you say Trump has some very particular criminal law needs that are driving him to run for president. What's going on there? And again, like I said, it's one of the motivating factors here. It's not the only one. But something that People who are still very close to Donald Trump, people who have spoken to him regularly or semi-regularly since he left the White House, will tell you nowadays is that as the various investigations have heated up, and just to underscore, it's not one criminal investigation into Donald Trump. There are multiple criminal investigations that are currently occurring into him and his then-top associates. So, 
what they'll tell you is that as these investigations have chugged along and as the January 6th hearings on Capitol Hill have been televised more and more and more, when they talk to Donald Trump about his potential 2024 ambitions and plans, when they're kicking around ideas with him about how he might announce early, they'll tell you that it does not take that much time at all for him to oftentimes segue from that into talking about what he views are the legal protections of being an occupant of the Oval Office. I'm only lightly paraphrasing here, but some things that he'll sprinkle into uh, fairly recent conversations about a, a potential 2024 run. And then by recent, I'm talking about over these past summer weeks and months. He'll kick around things like saying it's much harder for the nasty Democrats and politicians and prosecutors to get to you. If if you are sitting in the Oval Office, they couldn't do this to me. It was harder for them to get to you while I was president of the United States. Um, he, he has assured certain confidants in recent weeks that once he is president of the United States again, and again, he frames it as a when, not an if, when he's talking to these people, the new Republican administration will shut down what the Biden Justice Department is currently doing in terms of its wide ranging investigation into the lead up of January 6th, which Trump, of course, views as the Biden administration trying to put him or a people he knows in prison or at the very least slam them with, shall we say, hefty criminal charges. So again, if you are someone who is currently close to Donald Trump and you have spoken to him recently about 2024, there is a better than decent chance that he has also brought up to you the legal benefits and the presidential immunity that comes with being elected president of the United States. And a bunch of people who have come away from these conversations with Trump recently come away with the clear impression that, okay, he's obviously linked the two things in his head, and it's very clearly front of mind for him right now. That's so interesting. I mean, sort of the way you're describing it, it does seem like occasionally he's like, you can't prosecute the president, and but sort of not tying it to himself. I'm just saying, if someone were to run for president, anyone... Because that's how Donald Trump talks and has for a long time, including the decades before he became leader of the free world. There are people, including guys like his former personal attorney, Michael Cohen, who will say, oh yeah, Donald Trump speaks in mob speak, whether intentionally or unintentionally, all the time. It's oftentimes kind of a code, but not at all a hard to decipher code, as long as you have at least half a brain. I would argue he speaks very prolifically in what you and I would call David Mamet talk basically. Can you give me an example of David Mamet talk? Like in Glengarry Glen Ross, when they say, oh, we're not talking about doing a crime. We're talking about if like you were going to do the I crime see. or if people were going to. Yeah, I see what you mean. It is a lot of like, who will rid me of this meddlesome priest? So do you think that this is the kind of desire to avoid criminal prosecution has sort of cemented Trump's resolve to run? Or do you think that's just one of many reasons he was already going to run? I think it's one of a number of reasons. But if anything, based on the people I've spoken to, who are still very close to the ex-president. If anything, right now in the political discord, it is actually underrated 
how much of a motivating factor this is for former President Trump as he weighs a potential 2024 White House bid. So how is this going to influence the timing of his announcement? Because obviously Republicans, there's a sense that Republican leaders want him to hold off until after the midterms because they don't want the midterms to be tied to Trump and potentially be a drag on the other candidates. I mean, at the same time, if he announces sooner, I mean, I think at least in sort of the this theory that you can't be charged if you're even running for president, perhaps that or it would make DOJ less likely to charge him. It would sort of put the impetus on him to announce as soon as possible. How do you think that's playing into the timing there? Oh, well, I mean, another reason he is having sort of this tug of war with other Republican Party leaders and some of his closest advisors right now about should I announce early and significantly before the 2022 midterm elections conclude or should I not? One of the reasons he has been itching for months to just come out and formally or quote unquote formally declare I am now running for president of the United States again is because no matter how much bravado he trots out in public, he does see, for instance, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as a potential threat to him just gliding and coasting to a 2024 nomination should he choose to seize it. And one way that he views attempting to clear the field of potential challengers to the throne is by just announcing much sooner than you would expect someone of his standing or someone who does have eyes towards trying to win or win back the White House. It would be pretty unusual for someone, particularly someone of Trump's political standing, to just come out and (laughs) announce that, yes, I'm running for president at this stage, just over one year into the Biden presidency. So, I mean, it's kind of a hilarious, like, leap. You know, speaking of Ron DeSantis, there's been a lot of talk that if he gets in the race, you know, obviously he's been kind of built up for a while as, like, the big Trump alternative. And more recently, I feel like I've seen some talk saying that Trump would crush him like a tin can. He would Jeb Bush him. I feel like I have this experience sometimes that people, like, are like, oh, Tom Cotton's gonna run for president. You watch a video of the guy speak and you go, huh, I don't really see it, to be honest. What do you make of Ron DeSantis' chances against Trump Or do you think the idea that he can go mano a mano against him is a bit overrated? I think it is somewhere in between. I mean, if I had to place a bet, if you made me place a bet, I would say Trump is clearly the odds on favorite and the clear front runner should he choose to seek the 2024 nomination. However, having said that, it's kind of hard to judge it because no primary is actually happening right now between the two. But to Ron DeSantis's credit, and this is definitely in the category of uh, damning with faint praise. When you compare him to people like Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, Tom Cotton, there is a attractiveness that he exudes, that he evinces to Pompeo the Republican got base. now, though. Oh, well, I mean, how far is that going to carry him? (laughs) And again, we're talking comparatively here. But there is something there that you don't see in a Tom Cotton or a Josh Hawley. Like, Ron DeSantis is kind of, and the reason I say kind of is because we really have no idea yet. It's entirely possible he does, if he goes head to head against Donald Trump, just get crushed like like an insect. But for what it's worth, currently in his image branding, nationally speaking, and to Fox News audiences and stuff like that, he does have something that Josh Hawley was trying to create, but just completely fell flat on his face starting in like early 2021. Ron DeSantis is kind of being like, okay, I am Trumpism, but I'm a little bit different than Trump in that I'm a little bit more refined in that I don't tweet or post so many truth social posts about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. I got that going for me. I'm at least leaving that on the table. Josh Hawley tried to do that, but currently in uh, potential 2024 Republican primary matchups, 
he is polling equal to what I am, basically, within the margin of error. Ron DeSantis, to his credit, actually is creating some sort of national fan base. But again, if he has the power to do with that as much as Trump did, that really remains to be seen, at best. All right, now, moving on to yet another well-covered topic on this podcast. Will, you have some news for us from the depths of the QAnon sickos. What's going on? <laughs> yes, yes. Once again, we have a, an exciting story about the intersection between QAnon conspiracy theorists and somewhat baffled local law enforcement officials. Okay, so there's a guy named Ryan Dark White. And when we talk about conspiracy theorists, you know, sometimes we talk about kind of the high level folks like Sidney Powell or Lynn Wood, although Lynn Wood's star is kind of waning. But then sometimes there's guys who like the people who are often cited in like election fraud affidavits as like deep state whistleblowers and stuff like that. These people are kind of dealing with like the machine code of the conspiracy. These are the folks who like are almost like too weird to be seen in public. And so then like, they kind of have to be they create the raw material and then it is kind of like refined and refined and then it ultimately Sidney Powell might be talking about it at a convention so in this case there's this guy named Ryan Dark White and he goes by the alias John here to help and he managed to amass at least over 100,000 Twitter followers I think likely many more before ultimately being banned but he's kind of a big QAnon guy and notably, his kind of original claim to fame, along with his own kind of private QAnon army, was the fact that Lynn Wood took him, like basically took this guy's claims as gospel. I was reading an article I wrote about their relationship, ominously written on January 5th, 2021, about their, basically, this guy claimed to be like this deep state whistleblower, but he had some like somewhat unusual ideas. He claimed that the deep state had broken through to another dimension. And I mean, it's kind of hard to explain, but basically he claimed they had stolen God's voice which I mean, this is like real like golden compass type stuff. But basically, he said they had like stolen God's voice and then used it to like influence world leaders. And Linwood sort of took his claims. This is where Linwood got the idea that John Roberts was in the cabal and that John Roberts was like trafficking children. A sort of convenient idea if you're Linwood, because he was convinced that John Roberts would be ousted as chief justice and Linwood would be appointed according to a lawsuit filed against him. So point being, that Ryan Dark White is like a big kind of heavy in the conspiracy theory world. Now, my story back in 2021 uncovered that he was also a heavy in the illicit opioids world because he had been charged in 2015 with cadging uh, via Medicare, whopping 80,000 opioid pills. And the pharmacists were tipped off when he went and said, hey, like these don't work on my totally legitimate reasons for them to use anymore. And they said, well, yeah, they changed it so you can't use them just to get high. <laughs> and he was like, oh, yeah, Sure, okay. Anyway, so this guy went to prison for it. That's kind of the backstory. So, cut to last week. Ryan Dark White is now running a doomed Maryland Senate campaign as a Republican. As we're recording this, it's Maryland primary day. I suspect he will not win the primary. But on the side, this is a busy guy, right? So he's running a Maryland Senate campaign, and he's also working in what's described as an undercover sting at an adult bookstore. QAnon believers, they're always on the hunt for often mythical claims of human trafficking. In Ryan's case, he was working at this adult bookstore and calling the police and saying like, yeah, there's kids getting trafficked out of this place, whatever. That's just really lazy world building there because like look the thing that made the pizzagate stuff so compelling obviously not morally justified but compelling storytelling for conspiracy theory world is that oh they have like children's rape dungeons in 
the basement of a pizza joint in Northwest DC. There's a secrecy shrouded in mystery to that. Whereas you're just being lazy if you're like, oh, the thing that is just blaring sex all day young. Yeah, yeah, that's where the sex crimes are happening. Yeah, I think there might be something shady going on in this adult bookstore. And so basically the police, this came out because Ryan gets, ends up getting arrested. They investigate, the sheriff investigates, and they discover that not only is there no human trafficking at this store, but this guy is a QAnon nut who appears to be making up these claims just to draw attention to himself and maybe get kind of valorized by the police and maybe boost his Senate campaign. Yet another item for the file of people arguing as of early 2021 that QAnon was just going away. <laughs> well, right, exactly. Not going anywhere. So this guy, he gets arrested and it kind of came across my email and I said, oh, John here to help, got in trouble once again. So he's in the clink now or, or spent the weekend in the clink and now will likely lose this Republican primary. But I think for me, the takeaway here is that when you see these conspiracy theories, there's often like, and you say, wow, this person pushing them is really a kook. But in fact, that's maybe the most respectable person pushing them. And that in fact, several miles down, there is a gremlin in the back room making these things up. And it's often a guy like Ryan Dark White, who is kind of the, the source material for these claims. And again, I mean, this is a guy who's still, despite my article about him and kind of his the true nature of his background coming out, it, this is a guy who's really still at it. And it is still treated like pretty credibly in the conspiracy theory world. And you've written about how John here to help remains a big deal. Lay out for me, like, how so? Yeah, I mean, this is a guy who's doing kind of calls with various kind of other QAnon figures, and he's sort of seen as a, like, a guy who knows what's going on. Like, he kind of, in some ways, I would say, has sort of replaced, is one of these kind of replacement cues after Q disappeared that people were like, well, here's another deep state whistleblower who will tell us the truth. And yet, this is sort of the fundamental, I think, the shabbiness of the real world that these folks live in, that they're posting about it's like me and eric holder we're cutting all these backroom deals i mean he has this kind of like personal fascination with eric holder and yet meanwhile it's like all right i'm in the back room at the adult bookstore in rural maryland <laughs> yikes well i gotta be honest i'm not sure i've heard of this guy before i would love to hear what he sounds like when he talks or what he sounds like while he's campaigning for office in maryland okay this week on fever dreams swin who do we have as our guest this week, we welcome Matt Ford to the pod. He's a writer with The New Republic. And if you're curious about the nitty gritty of how exactly we got to where we are as a country with an aggressively right-wing Supreme Court, I can think of no one better for us to talk to right now than Matt. Stick around. We got a lot to discuss with him. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up.
And now, we're joined by Matt Ford, a staff writer over at The New Republic. For years, Matt has been covering American law, our courts, and the state of modern American liberal democracy, previously at news outlets like The Atlantic, nowadays at TNR. In terms of bringing a lens of graphic historical context as well as analysis that swiftly cuts through the bullshit, it is hard to top Matt, especially if you're looking for a journalist who can briskly explain to you what exactly the U.S. Supreme Court is doing today and why. Matthew, welcome to your Fever Dreams debut. How does it feel? It feels great. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that very gracious intro. I appreciate it. You will get it precisely once in your lifetime <laughs> from me. Okay, so today let's obviously start with the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade. I am guessing you personally did not buy it when Susan Collins told the world that the Trump nominees would keep abortion rights safe and cozy in our country. Is that correct? I did not, no. And I think there's a few reasons for that. One is that if you look at the actual confirmation hearings, for a lot of people in the on the outer fringes or in the center, there are those who are like, oh, well, it's a mystery. It's a cosmic unknowable. It's one of these things that Greek prophets used to sort of take drugs and fantasize about to try and figure out what Brett Kavanaugh thinks about abortion. And then for the actual anti-abortion groups, they were like, yeah, this we want this guy to be confirmed because he will read the Constitution it was as it was originally intended, wink, wink, because he's got a reliable record on the rule of law, wink, wink. This was not really a mystery for the people who are closely involved in that. And that's even before we get into the stuff about Trump promising to appoint pro-life judges by having Leonard Leo shepherd through his nominations. It would have been the greatest surprise, I think, in the history of the American legal system if had voted up over Roe v. Wade. Right. I talked to former Trump administration officials who were involved with prepping Kavanaugh. We're like in the room for him for those mock hearing sessions. And they will tell you across the board, it's like we and he never promised that Roe v. Wade was safe. Like all you have to do is listen to his words in public. He says it's precedent and he respects that. That's like asking a hitman, okay, did you kill this guy? And the hitman responds, well, he's a great man, I respect him, and what kind of person would do that? Right. My favorite moment was when, I think it was Feinstein, was telling him about the horrific consequences of if you go back to the pre-Row era, because she was a political official back then, she knows what it was like. He said that he understands. He understands that this is a very important issue. He understands that it has a lot of emotional rancor. And that's like saying, like, I understand that World War II was fought between the Axis and the Allies, saying that Roe v. Wade is very important, that it's oppressed in the Supreme Court. That's just Wikipedia stuff. I think that really, for one, speaks to the success of the conservative legal movement in sort of building a vocabulary for their judges to go before the Senate and avoid these questions, but also speaks to a weakness for liberals in not figuring out a way to just sort of state the obvious. Okay, so sort of looking forward a little bit, there's a lot to be done right now, a lot for us to talk about when it comes to what I would say are some of the disastrous consequences already of this ruling. But something you have written about lately is, okay, so where does the Roberts court with its three Trump appointees go from here? Late last month, you wrote a piece for the New Republic headlined, Clarence Thomas will wipe out marriage equality and contraception next. Let me play devil's advocate for a moment. Okay, so the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, but conservatives have been saying that they were going to do that for decades now. Does the Roberts Court, even with guys like Justice Thomas on it, have the guts, for lack of a better term, more colloquialism right now, to actually go after the rest of it, as if the court majority were somehow staffed entirely by Robert Borks of the world. I'm not a lawyer, but I'm enough of one at this point to know to evade and dodge questions like a Supreme Court nominee for the Senate. I don't like giving exact predictions of what the court will do in terms of how 
the entire court will vote for it. I think Thomas, of all the judges, he's the clearest when it comes to telegraphing his intentions. Right. He's just said, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> this is what he wants to do. This is what he will do if he gets the chance. He will overturn Griswold. He will overturn Lawrence. He will overturn Obergefell. In the instance, the last two, these are ones he dissented from when they came out. That's his wish. I think the reason that that should give people pause more broadly is that Roe was the big one. If you ask the average American to name a Supreme Court case, they'll know probably three of them. They'll know Brown v. Board because they stayed awake in high school civics. They'll know Miranda v. Arizona because they watch Law and Order. And they know Roe v. Wade because it's been a, a huge political issue in this country for the last 40 years. I don't think the average American knows what Griswold is, knows what Lawrence is. I think they will increasingly know what Obergefell is, that, but they may not know it by name. I think that for a lot of these cases, Roe was the one that had, would engender the most political backlash. It's the one that people had organized around, had marched around, had planned around for 40 to 50 years. I don't think we have seen that sort of organizational apparatus around the other ones. Now, that also cuts the other way. There was not previously a movement necessarily to overturn these cases. The conservative legal movement hasn't really taken direct aim at Obergefell since it was handed down. And the other cases have, haven't really been chipped away yet. But there are signs that some Republican politicians want to go after them. And if the justices, they abide by the logic they use in Dobbs, they may find it hard to not justify reversing it and instead say, look, these rights are so important to you guys. Just is the democratic process. There's been all this talk about codifying things like Obergefell or Griswold in the Senate, and we're seeing responses today from these Republican senators saying, well, you know, we'll have to think about it. How do you think Democrats should respond to all this? I think they should go on the offensive on this stuff. And I think that pinning down Republicans on these votes is the exact way to do it. The thing about Supreme Court cases is that they have the big names and they're a little abstract. People hear Lawrence or Obergefell or Griswold or Roe, and they don't really know what that means in practical terms necessarily. I think we're seeing that now with Roe, where it's absolutely is causing a lot of problems for pregnant women in states that have passed restrictive abortion laws. They really need to pin down senators and representatives on, okay, if Lawrence is gone, if Obergefell's gone, if Griswold's gone, do you think that Congress should protect a right to access contraception? Do you think Congress should protect intimate relations, sexual relationships? Do you think Congress should protect same-sex marriage? And f really hold their feet to the fire on that, because generally speaking, these are all fairly popular among Americans. What do you make of Clarence Thomas in his footnote or whatever the term of art is for what he wrote, what he was outlining, what you're talking about here, that he didn't mention loving? Something that was done around the same time that operates on vague, generally the same principles as the other precedents that he cited. And yet, for some reason, he didn't go after the interracial marriage one. I wonder, why do you think that is? The quick and easy answer to that is that Loving v. Virginia was decided on two levels. There was the due process level, and then there was the equal protection level. Now, the equal protection argument is fairly straightforward. You can't discriminate against people on the basis of race, and that includes whom they choose to marry. So even if they got rid of all substantive due process cases forever, there would still be grounds to uphold loving and very clearly do so. But at the same time, there are a lot of other substantive due process cases that are pretty popular. I've mentioned and others have mentioned before that there was no constitutional right to travel that's explicitly written in the Constitution. That's something that's sort of been inferred by its structure, by what's in the historical tradition, by what's necessary for ordered liberty, for people to live about their lives. Aren't we kind of dancing around the fact that he's married to a white woman? I think he's certainly cognizant of that. It's kind of upholding the long-standing principle established by conservative jurisprudence that it is bad 
unless it starts affecting my life. And then suddenly, maybe it's good. The Equal Protection Clause should be enough to uphold loving no matter what, even if they do go against substantive due process, which is their putative reason for going after Griswold, Lawrence, Obergefell, and even Roe. Yeah, as to the justice more specifically, I do think that they look at sort of personally what they view the proper constitutional schemata for America to be. And so they may see stuff like right to travel, right to interracial marriage as important and necessary and fundamental. But other things that don't really affect them, I think Griswold or Lawrence, those things they don't seem to view as, as essential, even if other people do. Speaking of the justices, a few weeks ago, some protesters gathered outside of Morton's, the D.C. Steakhouse, and tried to protest Brett Kavanaugh having dinner there in light of the row being overturned. In response, you wrote an article for The New Republic entitled, There's No Constitutional Right to Eat Dinner. Let's talk about that angle. Where were you going with that? What do you think the larger point is there? Well, it was a Friday and I saw the news that morning. And... <laughs> it was a Friday. I was bored. Well, no, I mean, it's Friday and I talked to my editors about writing something more generally about how the court views originalism, how they use history tradition, how it can be more malleable. I was thinking of making these sort of fine distinctions, these arcane points. And then this came down where it wasn't Kavanaugh who said this. It was the steakhouse who said something to the effect of there's a right to like sit down and eat dinner in peace. And I think that was just a great way to to illustrate how Americans have a conception of rights that doesn't necessarily match what's in the Constitution. We, th we do think we have a right to go out and eat dinner. It would seem silly to say otherwise, but the Constitution doesn't necessarily protect that in its explicit language. I thought it would be useful to illustrate how a lot of the things that we sort of take for granted in modern life could be undermined by a court if it chooses to adopt a sort of lackadaisical approach to history and tradition. Very clever. <laughs> well, can you dig in on that a bit more, Matt, for people who haven't read your article? Sure. So the fun thing about it was I thought, well, I would just make a straightforward argument that, you know, oh, there's no constitutional right to dinner because it's in the it's not in the text. It's not in history and tradition. And then I looked into it and I found that there actually is quite a lot of historical sort of semi-precedent for regulating the sorts of meals people eat, when and how they can do it. That's something that the court looks at when evaluating, for example, whether gun regulation should be upheld. It looks at it when evaluating sort of some First Amendment issues, some Second Amendment, some Fourth Amendment issues. And so that sort of approach to it led me to look at English sumptuary laws, which were used to regulate luxurious goods in the medieval era. Led me to look at the sort of laws they had around eating meat on Fridays before the English Reformation. Even some of this made its way to the colonies. You know, some of the states tried to regulate this stuff. There was discussions about it at the Constitutional Convention on sumptuary laws. I was surprised to find the full extent of that. And it really sort of speaks to the fact that when you do this historical analysis, you try to root these things in laws and precedents and decisions that were made three, four, hundreds of years ago, you can often turn out in strange places. And I think that's something that the court will have to reckon with as it sort of takes this history and tradition approach more thoroughly going forward. Well, speaking as perhaps a little bit of a cynic, how do you think they are going to interpret this history and these traditions going forward? I think they're going to read it in a way that happens to align a lot with the Republican Party's political preferences. Just so happens. I mean, just coincidentally, I do think there are some instances where the justices have sort of bucked that trend. They sometimes are better on Fourth Amendment stuff than the average Republican state lawmaker would be. There are some instances where they're worse, especially on the Eighth Amendment. For them, the history and tradition argument is a way to sort of claw back what they thought the Warren Court changed. The era from 1957 to 1968, where Earl Warren was leading the liberal wing and creating all sorts of of precedents that really shape modern American society. Griswold, Roe, well, Roe was slightly after, but we can fudge that a bit. 
all these precedents on criminal justice, on personal liberty, on political structures, one person, one vote, they all really date to that Warren era, and they see that as anomaly. They see it as a heresy from the one true faith of what the founders had originally ordained. And as a result, they're willing to turn back the clock. Now, how quickly, how thoroughly is a matter of some internal debate among them, but there's certainly a drive to do it there. And something I think that more and more liberals are starting to get their minds around is the fact that the era that is a conservative boogeyman, the Warren Court that you just mentioned, think about how long not just that lasted, but the reverberating effects on so many different facets of American life lasted. It lasted for decades upon decades. And like you were saying that the current makeup of the Roberts court, it's trying to do the polar opposite of that in many ways. And I think more and more liberals are starting to wake up to the fact that that is perhaps the biggest part of Trump's legacy right now, that the conservative supermajority that he helped cement, like for many of us, and I would argue everyone on this podcast right now, we're going to be living with the effects of that until the day we die. It's not going away, and the shadow of it is just going to be monstrously long. And in its current makeup, it's obviously incredibly Trumpified. As we said, the former president appointed three justices to the highest court in the land. But the current hard right slant of SCOTUS, to me, is one of the greatest examples of if you subscribe to the assessment that the modern day Republican Party and Trump and Trumpism were never all that incompatible at all in the first place. Do you want to explain how you think a Trumpified Supreme Court diverges, if at all, from a Supreme Court that President Rubio would have put together? Or is this one of the ways in which, like, the horrors of Trumpism and the kind of quote-unquote respectability of the other facets of the modern-day Republican Party are in exact alignment? I think there's certainly a lot of overlap between the two. And I think we certainly know that they recognized early on that this was a marriage of convenience of sorts, but also of mutual compatibility. The thing that got Ted Cruz to backtrack in 2016 from his sort of vote your conscience convention speech was Trump's list of Supreme Court justices that he would name to the court. That gave him confidence that Trump would do what he said. I honestly don't think Trump has ever really thought about the Constitution. I certainly don't think his actions really ever bear that out. He sort of has, I think, a folk understanding of what the presidency is and how it operates in the sense that the president has a big dial that turns up and down gas prices in the stock market. I think that that is really the limit of Trump's constitutional understanding. But I think he also recognizes that the conservative legal movement has aspects of it that are very appealing to him. I think that he is a big fan of the idea that the executive has, in some circumstances, very clear and discreet authority that, that the legislature and the judiciary cannot infringe upon, sort of unitary executive theory. But he also favors some of the, the low regulation stuff and the other aspects of it that they do. At the same time, the conservative legal movement is exactly existed before Trump. It will exist after Trump. It, it was useful to have Trump. Of all the elections, the 2016 one was certainly a big one for them to win because it not only prevented a liberal Supreme Court, a 5-4 one after Scalia died, it gave them, as you mentioned, a supermajority for at least a generation. I think that they're going to move on from him and where they go necessarily is, is not clear, but I think he's certainly left an impact on how they view the limits of their power and what they will do next. Right. Going back in time to my young self to tell him that the host of NBC's Celebrity Apprentice is going to be one of the single most influential figures in modern American history. But one way in which he and his and by his, I mean the Supreme Court that he helped create diverged was that last time around they rejected his efforts 
to destroy the American democratic fabric as we know it when he was trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election. However, to read a Forbes headline from late last month, quote, Supreme Court takes up case that could make it easier to overturn elections. How scary is it to you that the Supreme Court even decided to take this thing up? And give our audience a rundown of what this case is exactly and what it could mean if worse comes to worse. I'm really glad you mentioned this because this is actually a perfect example of how the Trump sort of vision and how the conservative legal movement differ. And I'll start where you did with the, the case late last year where Trump asked them basically to throw out a bunch of electoral votes and the Supreme Court said no. It was the case, I think, Texas v. Pennsylvania. That was unusual. That was extraordinary. There was no precedent for that anywhere in American history, nothing even close, not even in the doldrums of Reconstruction with the constitutional crises in, in 1876 would anything like that be contemplated. And so that was fairly easy for them. The independent state legislature doctrine, which is the case that they'll hear next fall, involves whether or not state legislatures are simply passing normal laws when they regulate federal elections, or whether they are unbounded in their authority to do so. And what that means is that if it's a normal law, you write it, the governor signs it into law, the state courts review it, the federal courts can review it. Under the independent state legislature theory, when the Constitution says that the state legislature shall have the power to set time, manner, place for elections, what they can do is actually whatever they want. And that by simply singling out the legislature, the Constitution intended to exclude governors and state courts from any review whatsoever of what state legislatures do when it comes to federal elections. And that's an extraordinary position. That's one that I don't think is really borne out by the founders' intent. I think it's certainly not one borne out by history and practice, but it is one that has sort of an appeal among conservatives. There was a case about 10 years ago involving a redistricting commission in Arizona that sort of revolved around whether or not the state could transfer its redistricting power to an independent commission or whether that was exclusive to the state legislature. And it was a 5-4 decision with the four liberals and Kennedy saying, yeah, independent redistricting commissions are fine and valid and constitutional. And you had Roberts, you had Alito, you had Thomas, and you had Scalia saying, no, 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 the state legislature is the state legislature, and that is its own sphere. Do you have a prediction for which way the Roberts score is going to go on this one? Well, I'll tell you what the thing that really gives me some discomfort about it is. The court is supposed to take up cases in certain circumstances. They take them up when there's a dispute in the lower courts about the validity of federal law or when there's some sort of gross error or something like that. There's not really any dispute about the independent state legislature theory. There is no sort of belief in any of the federal courts. There's never been a ruling in its favor at the federal appellate level. And I'm 99% sure not at the district court level either. So there's no real reason for the court to take up this case unless it wants to change something. It's not like the Fifth Circuit said something and they got to go back and fix it. It would be really striking if the court took this case up for a reason other than to do something about it. Now, again, the caveat, the court can change its mind. The justices could take a look at this and they could say, well, this doesn't actually make much sense in practice, or maybe they think we don't want to go this far. We've got a lot of other big things coming up next term that we'll focus on. But I, I think the fact that they took it up at all is certainly means that there is at least four, it takes four votes to hear a case on the court. And that means that at least four justices think it's worth taking up. That doesn't mean there are five votes, but it certainly means that some justices are interested in it. Is it really possible that this case could make it easier for the next time Donald Trump or some other 
authoritarian-minded politician wants to seize power. Well, that's what a lot of election law experts like Rick Hazen have warned. And the, certainly the fear that you have is that a state would ignore its own election laws that it's written before the election and seat its own electors, regardless of what the popular vote is. And if they do so, and if the independent state legislature theory is valid, a state court and the governor wouldn't be able to stop that. The state legislature could send its own slate of delegates to the joint session of Congress on January 6th and have them accept that. And if that happens, it would be a constitutional crisis of sorts. I think that the court will really have to look at whether or not it wants to introduce more chaos into a process that is already not working perfectly. Well, that's an ominous glimpse into our future. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Again, Matt is a staff writer at The New Republic. He's on Twitter at Ford M. Matt, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. And now, Fever Dreams listeners, we bring you to our favorite recurring segment, Fresh Hell, in which we dig into something batshit that's going on in the world today that you may not think is actually plausibly occurring, but is indeed happening right before our eyes. Will, how is Lauren spilling all of her and other people's guts today? So Lauren Southern, brief background. A few years ago, if you imagine the early Trump administration, the Trump campaign era in 2016, this was sort of the heyday of the right-wing fame ball. Now, this is someone who had really no qualifications or anything like that, and they sort of emerged from nowhere, and they would record rude videos. These people would often go to protests, maybe left-wing protests, and say incendiary things and say, look at this idiot I'm filming, and maybe they would get beat up by Antifa, stuff like that. In this case, folks, I'm including in this list, Jack Posobiec, Laura Loomer, my Yiannopoulos, and Lauren Southern. And so Lauren Southern was a Canadian woman who sort of emerged out of nowhere again as a, she was like an anti-migrant activist in sort of the heyday of Syrian migrants coming to Europe. One of her vilest things she did was she got on a boat and tried to prevent this sort of a migrant rescue boat in the Mediterranean from leaving port. So this is kind of one of these people in this universe. Now, she has since had a child and sort of attempted multiple rebrands. I can sympathize here. I too have cleaned up my act ever since I had a child. You too had a child and denounced former cohort. Yes, you. I formally <laughs> denounced you after I had a child. It would be funny because I mean, basically what she does here is she goes, so last week she released this video turning on her former allies, but not really. Like It's sort of like these individual people I don't like, but I'm not denouncing my awful politics. So she recorded this whopping three hour video. And for Fresh Hell listeners, I was like, I got to get the dirt here. What's going on? So I watched this thing, needless to say, sped up a bit. <laughs> so this is someone who used to be really a major figure in the right, like kind of the Gamergate remnant people loved her. And so she goes out in the woods wearing like kind of like a Benetton outfit, like this big trench coat. And she's like, all right, I'm going to spill the deets on all my rivals. And I mean, a lot of this stuff is sort of like, who cares at this point? But what I did find interesting about it was that she sort of offered this insight of, of these fame balls, some of whom were still with us. Obviously, Milo is now interning for Marjorie Taylor Greene in Congress. Is he still doing that? Yeah, I think so. She portrays it as like, maybe if you thought the, the QAnon adult bookstore thing was grimy and depressing, I mean, this is worse. So basically, and this is her example here, she portrays it as like the scene in Reservoir Dogs where everyone has guns pointed at each other. Wait, wait, She does she reference the Quentin Tarantino movie? She's had a Mexican standoff. Try to make it more white for her. Right, exactly, exactly. But instead of guns, these people are holding just enormous amounts of blackmail they have on one another. And so often it's like, well, I'll release a quote, spicy meme, read a racist meme you sent me. Don't they just do that on their Instagrams, like in public? Well, yeah, I mean, often. That's their brand. <laughs> 
Well, a lot of times these people are doing what they call hiding their power level, which is to say that they don't want to, let's say, explicitly be a white nationalist, but it's sort of like, but I sure don't like these migrants. And, you know, they're kind of trying to cover it up just as sort of a fig leaf. Hiding their power level. Is that a Dragon Ball Z term? That's correct. Yes. Oh, wait, 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 really is? Oh, I, I, I just guessed so. that. I guessed no, that. I believe so, yes. Oh, wow. Okay. These people are constantly secretly recording one another. I mean, she talks about, but this is a three-hour thing, right? So it covers, you know, like basically five years of her career in this awful movement. And it covers a lot of like someone calling her up and being like, hey, remember that time we did this thing to this guy? And she'd be like, obviously this person's recording her to get some sort of leverage. You know, another example here would be like a James Elroy novel where people are constantly trying to like blackmail one another. But yeah, look, I mean, I thought I might run down briefly some of her allegations against her former buddies. Lay it on me. So Paul Joseph Watson, people may know him as sort of an Alex Jones minion. He's on Twitter at Prison Planet. And he's the guy who says things like, imagine my shock. So he's a British guy. So she claims they had a falling out after they went on a date. Basically, she references cocaine-fueled rants several times. They went on a date. They went back to his place and smoked cigars in a very kind of like epic internet prison fashion. And then she turned him down to take things further, allegedly. And then she claims ever since then, he turned on her. This kind of keys in on something interesting, I think, which is the plight of the right-wing fameball woman. So she rose to fame initially as an anti-feminist. And what was striking to me about this video was sort of how thin Lauren Southern's understanding of feminism is. Wait, she's saying she's a feminist now? Like sort of what set her off. Oh, and basically, oh, it sort of seems that what set her off was like a couple Steven Crowder videos, basically. <laughs> like, and she was like, I'm going to become an anti-feminist. And so, and yet, these women in these, this movement often find themselves quickly undone because whenever anyone disagrees with them, they say, this woman is a thought, right? Or they say this woman is a grifter trying to seduce these right-wing men. Thought stands for that. That hoe over there. That's exactly right. That right-wing blogger over there. <laughs> this was kind of a recurring issue for her and other women, even when they were kind of deeper in this scene. But I did think that was interesting, this idea that she goes on this date with Paul Joseph Watson, and then suddenly he's like, she's a grifter. Additionally, Milo Yiannopoulos sort of looms over her tail as the Thanos. Sort of a, every episode is kind of culminating in this giant battle at the end with Milo, where basically she claims he's constantly kind of betraying people and undermining them, which certainly reads as accurate to me. He claims that at one point, she alleges he was trying to blackmail her, and he says, I have all this gossip on you from jealous, ugly women. <laughs> Just seems like a very toxic community to be in. And finally, there's another rival woman of hers, I believe this woman is also Canadian, named Faith Goldie, who's sort of like Lauren Southern, has kind of disappeared from the scene. But basically, the they got in this huge feud because they were both having rival documentaries, trying to start sort of a racial panic about how white farmers were being treated in South Africa. And it was like, it was my idea to do this. It was your idea, whatever. It was my idea to be racist towards South Africans. <laughs> right, right, exactly. No one else could have come up with that. A certain fanball called me up once and was just like, oh, my life is so awful, everyone hates me, whatever. And it's like, well, yeah, you did some <laughs> bad things. <laughs> I mean, this is why most people don't do bad things. But what struck me was really how, number one, how kind of small this whole thing ended up being in terms of her career, because it's like, okay, we went to Australia and we had like a rowdy speech and stuff. And it's like, all right, that's what it all came to. They said you were epic once. She got banned from Australia and the UK. I mean, this is not good stuff, getting banned from this kind of stuff. So in the end, was it worth it? Probably not. But what also struck me about it was like how little consideration there was to the fact that like her career was just like whipping up hate, whether it's 
against feminists, against Muslim people, against migrants. And there was really no like concern for any of those people in all this. No, of course it, not. It was just like Milo was mean to his video editor. It was like how just small this world still was for her. And that she's like crying in the woods because like someone tried to, one of her friends tried to blackmail her so they could like put some video out on some blog that only I read. It really made me think about what it's all about. I mean, it really is a smaller and somehow more idiotic version of the high school style drama that you and I have covered on this podcast before when it comes to people like Mike Flynn, Sidney Powell, Lynn Wood, and the ilk. It's not over anything that they substantively did. It's that they had disagreements over maybe things like money. Yeah, it's like, Sydney, you took our money. That was supposed to be my money. That kind of stuff, yes. And I don't want to keep empathizing with Lauren Southern here, but I will tell you this, Will. I did leave the Daily Beast months ago with reams upon reams of audio that I secretly recorded of you that I'm <laughs> waiting to deploy as compromat against you at the drop of the hat. The only problem is that whenever I review it, the most damaging things I can find are always you saying things like you think how I met your father is artistically superior to how I met your mother. That's as good as it gets for me. So consider my blackmail operation against you suspended for the time being. Well, as long as we keep having you back on the podcast, hopefully you'll hold off. Well, Sven, it has truly been a pleasure bringing you back. I've enjoyed every drop of it. And the moment I start to mount my podcast empire over at Rolling Stone, I will be sure to make you beg for a guest slot. Just absolutely just get on your knees and plead for it. Well, we certainly have that to look forward to. Okay. <laughs> on that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demeglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.